on May 17th, the first major American sport is going to reopen, having closed for the coronavirus pandemic. That's right. 40 NASCAR teams are going to race their cars around the track at Darlington Speedway in South Carolina. 700 people will be present, but no fans. Team members, stadium personnel, and broadcast crews only will be allowed to attend the event. NASCAR will be catering to a television-only audience. And I would suppose the vast majority of the video cameras are going to be positioned above and in the curves. Watching cars fly down a straightaway gets boring. But it's in the turns that the cars jockey for placement. It's coming in and out of the turns that moves are made and that crashes occur. And reading the Bible is a lot like watching a NASCAR race. Pay special attention to the turns. You see, the Bible is the story of a loving God who has worked tirelessly to establish a relationship with human beings. Seven times in the Bible, God has proposed a covenant with mankind. We've studied them, the Edenic, the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and now the New Covenants. You see, God's covenants are the turns in the story of man's redemption. And crashes have occurred in the human race. Often mankind fails to live up to his part in the relationship. Yet God never fails. He responds to our blunders with new terms and with new covenants. Understand, God doesn't just want any type of relationship. God has his expectations and his desires. And his covenants define his terms. Real fellowship between two parties doesn't just happen. It's not meaningful or sustainable without a covenant. A real relationship is governed by agreed-upon understandings between both parties. Take two single people. Say they forego marriage and decide to shack up. Hey, they like each other. It's convenient, perhaps even cheaper. And boy, they want to have sex. Who needs the promises and the expectations and the stipulations and all the provisos that come with marriage? And all might go well for a time. But who buys the groceries? Who mows the grass? What if the guy brings home another girl? Or what about the gal? What if she wants a break? Or what if one of them invites another friend to move into the, to the household? See, without a covenant, without agreed upon terms, who defines the relationship? It's all up in the air. And this is why a non-covenantal arrangement lacks the value. It lacks the stability to survive. In Amos chapter 3, verse 3, God asks the question, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? The obvious answer is no. Lasting relationships are based on agreements. They're based on covenants. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Amazingly, God wants a relationship with us. And God is the one who has set out the terms. 
He doesn't negotiate. You don't sit down and work out a covenant that's convenient for you and that also works with God. See, God never haggles or brokers a deal. His covenants are always take-it-or-leave-it propositions. You either play by God's rules or you can't join God's team. This is why it grieves me whenever I hear someone say, well, me and the man upstairs, we're tight, man. Or, oh, I'm cool with God, we got an understanding. Or I've worked out my own relationship with God. No, you haven't. Say that and you're revealing your own blindness. God doesn't go around striking up individual deals. Seven times in human history, God has laid out covenants with mankind. And they were important enough to be recorded in the Scripture. These covenants are what the Bible is all about. God's covenants are the means by which God plans to restore a fallen world. It's a tribute to God's amazing grace that whenever man rebels and sins, God's response is a covenant. When the first man, Adam, sinned, God didn't shrug his shoulders and say, well, boys will be boys. Oh, no. Something had to be done. According to the Edenic covenant, the wages of sin is death. There was a proper way to cover sin and shame. God used leather to clothe the first sinners. He sacrificed an animal on their behalf. And because of Adam's sin, death or entropy entered into all of nature. You and I now live in a fallen world that's under the sway and influence of Satan himself. God's answer to that was another covenant with Adam. The ancient promise of the woman's seed, the ultimate offspring of Eve, the virgin-born son of God, would crush the serpent or Satan's authority. The serpent would harm the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and destroy his authority. When fallen humanity became so polluted that God had to purge the earth with a flood, he started over with an undefiled family. He made a covenant with Noah. When Noah's descendants disobeyed God and launched a coup d'etat at the Tower of Babel, God busted up the party and started over with another covenant. Rather than work with humanity as a whole, this time God chose one family, and He made a covenant with Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Israel. He promised the Abraham Abrahamic family, a land that they would become a great nation and that an heir would be born of Abraham who would bless the entire world. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. It consists of three promises, sod, seed, and salvation. Well, after the nation of Israel exited Egypt, God prepared his people for the promised land. He set them apart from other nations by making a covenant again this time with Moses. It included the law, the sacrifices, and the blessings and curses. God even promised an eternal kingdom and an eternal king to a son of David, to the nation Israel. God made a covenant with David that his heir would sit on his throne forever, that he would rule the world and live forever. He was called the anointed one. In English, it's Christ. In Hebrew, Messiah. 
But when the Babylonians conquered the Jewish kingdom and took the nation back to Babylon, a chill settled in over the more knowledgeable rabbis. For a son of David no longer sat on the actual throne there in Israel. Had God's covenant failed? Nearly 2,000 years earlier, God had called Abraham out of Babel, the land of idols. Now God's people were back in Babylon. Tragically, they had come full circle. Psalm 137 was written in tears by these exiled Jews. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows. For those who carried us away captive asked us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. The Jews long to return home to their land of Israel. And just like the gracious God he is, Almighty God responded to his people's longing with a covenant, another covenant. In Judah's darkest hour, God shined his brightest light. Jeremiah, still living in Israel, Ezekiel, among the exiles in Babylon, announced a new covenant that God would make with his people. His people, and actually with all people. And it too included three promises. The new covenant promised that Israel would be regathered to their land, that spiritual life would be reborn or regenerated in the people's hearts, and that a king would come to reestablish the throne of David and the kingdom of Israel. And God sent His only Son, Jesus, to ratify this covenant. All God's covenants are signed with blood, and the new covenant was no different. The night before Jesus was crucified, He took the Passover cup, and He redefined its meaning. The Lamb of God said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus came to activate the new covenant. At the time of Jesus, the Jews had been regathered to their land. With his death on the cross and its payment for sin, it was now possible for sinful men to be forgiven and be given new life. It was the miracle of regeneration. And as we discussed last time, If the Jews had received the gospel at the time and had received Jesus as their Messiah, there's evidence from Peter's preaching that Jesus would have returned in the first century to reestablish the throne to David and set up God's kingdom on the earth. But the Jews didn't. In fact, they still haven't. And for 2,000 years now, God's new covenant has been put on pause. God offered his kingdom to the Jews, but they refused and chose to remain under the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant. It was a tragic mistake. Over the centuries, the curses of Deuteronomy 28 have come upon the Jews over and over and over again. Shortly after their rejection of Messiah, in 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple. Thousands of Jews were crucified or sold into slavery. The Romans leveled the Temple Mount and built a temple to their own idolatrous god, Jupiter. 
They even renamed Jerusalem, the holy city, Aelia Capitolina, after the Emperor Hadrian's family. Eventually, Rome barred the Jews from their own city. The nation was no more, and the Jews were a scattered people. And if you had just been following the Old Testament storyline, you would have cried. The new covenant was the last of the covenants. God's plan ends with his people's failure. But you see, God had a secret. God had kept back vital information from the Jewish prophets. God can do that, by the way. Did you know God has his secrets? He does. I love Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Put together those two thoughts, and you get the notion that God has his secrets, and he likes to reveal them to his people. Now keep that in mind. i got a story to tell you. This story was first reported in the Boston Globe. The events occurred in June of 1990. A young lady from Boston had grown up in a poor family. She had even spent time in a homeless shelter. Yet through hard work and a successful business, she had risen out of her squalor. Her life seemed perfect, in fact. She met a man and they decided to get married. In preparation for the reception, this young lady, she contracted the downtown Hyatt, ordered a meal with all the trimmings, expensive centerpieces, formal waiters, even an orchestra for entertainment that night. The price tag for the big shindig was $13,000. At the time, that was a lot of money. But here's where the plot thickens. A few days before the wedding, the groom got cold feet. He said he didn't know if he was ready for such a big commitment like marriage. And after a painful conversation with his fiancée, the boy backed out. Well, the spurned bride, she immediately went to the Hyatt for a refund. But to no avail, the contract she'd signed was binding. She had two options. She could cancel and forfeit 90% of her money, or she could go through with the party. Though at first it seemed crazy, the more the jilted bride thought, of going on with the party, the more she liked the idea. Here's what she did. First, she changed the night's menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. Then she sent out invitations to all of Boston's homeless shelters and rescue missions. That night, Hyatt waiters, dressed in tuxedos, served delicious hors d'oeuvres to bag ladies and panhandlers. People who normally ate half-gnawed pizza feasted on chicken cordon bleu. Vagrants sipped champagne and street people ate chocolate wedding cake. They all danced into the night with big band melodies. You could sum it all up with one word. Surprise! The jilted bride did the unthinkable. Rather than waste a good party that already had been paid for, she invited folks who would appreciate the blessing. She hosted a feast and invited strangers. And this is the secret that God had kept from Israel. 
And here's where we need to read our text. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. It addressed the Gentiles, people who aren't the chosen Jews. It reads that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like the jilted bride, God had been jilted by his own people Israel. When they refused to believe in Jesus, he made an unprecedented move that no one could have ever expected. God had a perfectly good covenant paid for by the blood of his only son. Why let it go to waste? So God sent shockwaves through the halls of heaven. He took promises and covenants intended specifically for the children of Abraham, and he offered them to every man, to Gentiles, to strangers, to even me and you. Understand, this would be like a dog breeder who specialized in properly pedigreed pups, suddenly opening up the kennel to mutts and mongrels. I mean, God took the status he had reserved for his special chosen people, Israel, and offered it to any human with a pulse. Gentiles were offered God's covenants. Here's the secret that God refused to reveal to the Old Testament prophets. Israel would reject their Messiah, but God would not be without a people. He would make a new people group out of both Jews and Gentiles. Anyone believing in Jesus would be invited to the party. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14? A man hosted a great supper. But the people he invited, they all had excuses why they couldn't come. And so he told his servants to go out and invite the poor and the lame and the maimed and the blind. And yet despite their efforts, there was still room for more. And so he sent the servants again into the highways and hedges to recruit anybody and everybody for his party. You see, the host's only priority was a full house. And here's the meaning of the parable. God will fill up his kingdom with misfits and nobodies, not just blue bloods. In Christ, God opens the door to all men. Isn't that wonderful? In Matthew 21, Jesus teaches the same truth again. A landowner planted a vineyard and he leased it to a crew of viticulture workers who didn't like paying rent. All they really wanted to do was was wine. (laughs) Appreciate that, thank you. So when he sent his servants to collect the rent... This malicious bunch, they beat and stoned and killed the servants. That's no way to treat a friendly bill collector. So the landowner sent his own boy. He figured, they will respect my son. But the men saw it as a chance to kill the heir and steal the owner's estate. You know, it's revealing. Later in Matthew chapter 21, we're told, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. 
Of course he was. The Jews were enjoying new covenant blessings without bearing any new covenant fruit. Oh, they occupied the land and they looked forward to the kingdom, but they had rejected God's messengers. They had killed his son and practiced on his prophets. The vine dressers of Judaism were destined for judgment. And Jesus delivers the moral of the story when he says, The kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. This is what Paul in Ephesians refers to as a mystery. The mystery of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 3, you're there in Ephesians, you can flip a page to it. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 4, he speaks of the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy prophets and apostles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. Remember, God keeps secrets. Paul calls God's secrets mysteries. And His biggest mystery was the church. I don't know about you, but I like a little mystery in my life. Hey, a predictable life is a boring life. I love a few surprises. My wife Kathy and I have been married for 39 years, and she still surprises me, and I like that. She supplies a lot of mystery. For it's the mystery that keeps me intrigued. It keeps me enchanted. Don't you like to keep a secret and then spring it on someone special? We all do. It's a thrill. It stirs up love and interest. Well, the church is the mystery of the new covenant. All along, God knew what he would do, but he kept it a secret so that he could spring it on us. Don't ever think of the church as God's plan B. Oh, since the Jews wouldn't dance, God was stuck with the Gentiles as his partner. Granted, that's how it seems, but there are plenty of passages that state it was always God's will to include the Gentiles in his new covenant. He just kept it a secret. It was a mystery. I love how 1 Peter 2, verse 9 addresses the church, Jews and Gentiles. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's how God spoke of Israel under the Mosaic covenant. Now he refers to the church with the same language. We're a holy nation, a special people. Remember at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages and he scattered the Gentiles. That's when he turned his attention to one family, the Hebrews. But Abraham's family rejected the salvation that God had offered under the new covenant. And he turned his attention, God turned his attention back to the rest of humanity. On the day of Pentecost, God started a new work among the nations. He reversed what he did at the Tower of Babel. Rather than confuse the languages, God gave the church the gift of tongues so that they could speak in languages, in other languages, the praises of God. It unified the crowd. At Babel, the nations were dispersed, but at Pentecost, God brought people back together. In a supernatural way, God ended the language barrier that had kept mankind segregated. 
The nations God drove apart at Babel were reunited at Pentecost. God was forming a new people group. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, those who once were not a people are now the people of God. Understand what God is doing through the new covenant in His church. He is creating in us a whole new species of human being. Before this mystery was revealed, there were only two kinds of humanity on planet Earth, Jews and Gentiles. But that changed with the church. For when God invited Gentiles to join in the new covenant, he was creating out of Jew and Gentile a new distinction. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 verse 15. It says, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Today, there's no longer just Jews or Gentiles. There's a third breed of humanity called Christian. In Christ, a new covenant community has been born. For a time, the church has repl- for a time the church has replaced Israel as God's focal point on the earth. Not forever, not hardly. In fact, the restoration of all things is a promise that God made to Israel. God will again turn His attention to the children of Abraham. God's ultimate rule on earth will be from the throne of David and in the land of Israel. But according to Romans eleven, for the moment. Israel is the branch that's been cut off from the vine. And the church, this new group, has been grafted in its place. Remember, under the old covenant, where did Israel come to worship God? Well, they came to the Jewish temple. It was God's designated meeting place with people. In fact, it was a sin to sacrifice at any other altar. Part of the Davidic covenant was that David's son would build God a temple. When Solomon got his certificate of occupancy, God dedicated the new temple with divine fireworks. We're told that fire fell from heaven and consumed the meat of the sacrifice. It was a new day for Israel. But again, God repeated that same miracle at Pentecost. For when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church... Flickers of fire appeared on the heads of the disciples. Why? God was dedicating a new temple. The fire of the Holy Spirit had fallen on the sacrifice, but this time, not dead meat, this sacrifice was alive and kicking. God likes His sacrifices rare today. He likes living sacrifices. He wants us to be totally dedicated to Him. Yet here's the point. Today, the church has become the temple of God. We're the place where men now come to worship God. We're a house of prayer for all nations. As the temple was under the Mosaic Covenant, today the church reflects God's glory. 1 Peter 2 refers to believers as living stones. We're stacked up on Jesus, our chief cornerstone. With the time I have left, let me help you grasp what it means to be a new covenant believer. Truly a new covenant believer. How the third breed differs from the first two. 
the Jews and the Gentiles. Think of it this way. The Gentiles were unrighteous. Ephesians 2 verse 1 describes their nature as dead in trespasses and sins. And you know dead pretty much means dead. There are no degrees to death. You can't be partially dead. You're either dead or you're not. The Gentiles were born dead in their sins and trespasses. They were hostile to God or called children of wrath. They were dead in their sin. But the Jews weren't any better. They were self-righteous. The Gentiles were unrighteous. The Jews were self-righteous. And this was the Lord Jesus' biggest beef. Remember, he was kind and merciful to the tax collectors and prostitutes. But he was intolerant of the self-righteous crowd. The people who were legalistic, hypocritical, prejudicial. People like the Jews called, who the Jews called the Pharisees. Jesus called them sons of hell. See, the Gentiles were unrighteous. The Jews were self-righteous. But it's amazing. The new covenant refers to the Christian as the righteousness of God. This blows my mind. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 puts it. For God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ we receive and then we become the righteousness of God. Amazing. Recall the middle promise of the new covenant. Regeneration. In John 3, Jesus explained it to Nicodemus as being born all over again. It's a spiritual awakening. In Jeremiah 31 verse 33, God explains what he'll do. I will write my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Fail to understand that promise, and you'll live well below your privileges as a Christian. Under the Mosaic or the Old Covenant, God wrote down his laws on stone tablets. Remember, Moses brought down from the mountain the Ten Commandments written by the very finger of God. But under the new covenant, God writes his will in us on hearts of flesh. His desires become our heartbeat. Before I came to Jesus, my instinct was to resist God and do my own thing. And mostly my own thing were bad things. On occasionally it might be a good thing, but it was always my thing. I was selfish at the core. But when I embraced Jesus, a change took place inside of me. He etched into my heart a love for Him and now a love for others. I now desire to obey. My former spirit of defiance was replaced with now a spirit of compliance. You could say it like this. Before I knew Jesus, on occasion, I would slip up and do a good deed. God's desires and my desires might accidentally cross paths. But my inner compass pointed away from God. Yet now, as a Christian, everything has flip-flopped. On occasion, I might slip up in sin, but God's desires and mine remain in sync. My heart's desire is to please God. Now my inner compass points to God. Once I was at home with sin... 
Now that I'm a Christian, when I participate in it, it feels out of character. It's no longer me. You know, there's a Christian bumper sticker that teaches bad theology. Perhaps you've seen it over the years. It's been popular. It reads, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And I understand the basic sentiment. It's trying to say that what sets Christians apart isn't that we live perfect lives. It's that we've thrown ourselves on the mercies of God and we've received from God His forgiveness. But implied in that statement is that when a person becomes a Christian, all that changes about them is their rap sheet. Their sins get expunged, but nothing really happens inside of them. And that couldn't be more false. The new covenant highlights the transformation that Christianity promises. The metamorphosis that occurs inside the Christian. As an ugly earthbound caterpillar turns into a butterfly, we as Christians are transformed spiritually. God changes what we are. And we're given power to soar above our sin and treat others in a different way. The new covenant changes our heart's desire. We get a new set of wants. The law of Moses prohibited sin. Under the new covenant, I no longer want to sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 compares the covenant written on stone with the covenant written on human hearts. The old covenant with the new covenant. You know, whenever you put a thought down in print, you run the risk of it being misinterpreted or misunderstood. And that's what often happened with God's law. The Jews interpreted it in a stilted, wooden, legalistic kind of way. That's why under the new covenant, God avoided that pitfall. He wrote his will on the parchment of the heart. God embeds his will into the very fabric of our spirit. Paul explains God's motivation. In doing this, he says, The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, under the new covenant, keeping the rules has been replaced with being led by the Holy Spirit. We no longer have the the tablets, the words that God wrote in our hands. Now we have something better. We have the God that wrote them living in our hearts, living out His will in us. 2 Corinthians 3 compares the glory of this old covenant. says it was fleeting, fading, a fading glory. Compares it with the glory of the new covenant, which is a transforming glory. When Moses received the old covenant, his face glowed with God's glory. We call it the mo-glow, the divine shine. Moses had to cover his face with a veil. The glory was off limits to everyone but Moses. But in contrast, Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In other words, everyone under the new covenant is invited to behold God's glory. As Paul puts it, we all now come before God with an unveiled face, he says. You and I have access to God. This was the promise of Jeremiah 31. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, know the Lord, for they all shall know me. Here's the lasting relationship with God that all the other covenants sought to accomplish but didn't. We now can know God. Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. He says, Behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. 
Under the new covenant, we grow more holy. We reflect God's glory. We become more like Jesus just by spending time with Him, just by beholding His glory. It's a mirror effect. The more you look at Jesus in the mirror, the more you absorb His reflection and you radiate His glory. This is how transformation takes place under the new covenant. Here's what I'm saying. The Gentiles have become part of God's family through the new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. Hebrews 7 verse 22 speaks of the new covenant that Jesus authored as a better covenant. Jesus can't fail because the Jesus' covenant can't fail because it rests on his work, not mine. It's his work in me, not my work for him. Jesus died for our sins once and for all. Recall our Savior's final words on the cross. It is finished. That's the promise of the new covenant. Reminds me of a joke, believe it or not. See, Moses and Jesus, they're sitting around in heaven reminiscing about their time on earth and the various miracles they performed. Well, Moses wonders if he still really has what it takes. And so they both decide to revisit the earth and renew old times. Moses is by the Red Sea. He turns to Jesus and he says, well, here's hoping. He raises his rod and sure enough, once again, the sea splits in two just like before. Moses says, wow. It's nice to know I still got it. Next, they're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says to Moses, well, it's my turn now. It's been years since I've walked on water. Let's see if I can still do this. So Jesus strides off the shore, and he walks several hundred yards out on the water. He turns around and grins at Moses. He comments that it feels good to be back on top of the water. But when he tries to walk back, Jesus has a problem. He takes a few steps and he sinks to his ankles. He walks a few more yards and he's trudging in water up to his knees. Finally, he sinks and Jesus has to swim to shore. Jesus can't figure out what went wrong. And that's when Moses points to his feet and tells Jesus, Lord, you forgot about the holes Now, it's not just a joke, for here is the difference between Moses and Jesus. It's the holes. It's the nail prints. Friend, he died for you. He he subjected himself to those nails, those spikes in his hands and in his feet. What's different about Jesus and Moses is not the miracles, it's the mercy. Jesus, not Moses, loves you enough to die in your place. Jesus is the guarantee of a covenant with no holes, a far better covenant, the new covenant. And here's the big question. Are you living under the old covenant or under the new covenant? See, I know many Christians who don't understand how real righteousness works. It's not a list of do's and don'ts that we're trying to keep. It's not up to us applying the elbow grease. Rather, we trust God and we spend time with Him 
And in return, He works in us. This is new covenant reality. He writes His law on our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. And yet too many Christians live as if they're under the old covenant. They live from the outside in. They obey the do's and don'ts, the commands and the rituals. They grind it out on their own. They rely on their own willpower. And they never experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Guys, don't be unrighteous. Don't be self-righteous. Receive God's righteousness by faith. Romans 11 verse 25 is another passage where Paul writes of the mystery of the church. But he takes it one step further. He tells us why this all happened. He says in verse 11 that salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. This is God's new covenant plan for evangelism. See, often we think of evangelism as an altar call or passing out a tract perhaps, but it's far more comprehensive. God wants the church to be a witness of what life is going to be like in the coming of God's kingdom. Our fellowship with God and with each other should be so rich, so full of grace and truth. It makes the Jews and the world around us jealous of our faith and our riches in Christ. Hey, this is the power of the church. Our greatest influence in the world is not our ability to mobilize politically or to pool our resources financially. We need to see the new covenant church through God's eyes. We are the temporary home for kingdom citizens. The kingdom of God won't come physically until Israel has been regathered and regenerated. Right now, we're living in the meantime. We're a stopgap measure. We're God's unfolded mystery. And our purpose is to be living out the values of the future kingdom in our relationships with each other now. We are an advertisement for God's kingdom come. You could say of the church, We are an outpost of heaven existing and operating behind enemy lines. We're like a little Havana. If you want to know what life is like on the streets in Cuba, then visit Little Havana in Miami. You'll get a taste of Cuba right here in the U.S. of A. And likewise, if you want to know what heaven's like, all you should have to do is visit the church. We need to offer a taste of heaven right here on earth, which is another reason why we need to be meeting in person. Isn't it ironic? The last of God's covenants is called the new covenant, for God is a God of newness. He wants to make all things new in your life. Bow before King Jesus today. Trust in God's Spirit to write His will upon your heart. And then begin to enjoy the mystery of the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you for this glorious, glorious new covenant that you've given us. That far outshines the glory of the old covenant. How it was limited to Moses but the new covenant now belongs to us all, that we all can come with unveiled face and behold your glory. We can know you, Lord, personally 
May we spend time with you, Lord. May we reflect upon you and allow you to transform us from the inside out. Thank you for your spirit who lives in our hearts. Lord, change us. Make us into what you desire us to be. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your will. Thank you for your plans for us, Lord. And those plans have never failed. You've been persistent. And we are so grateful. Thank you for your covenants, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.